Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. So 2015 has been an incredible year, and heeding the advice of one Ferris Bueller, Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. So we're using the last show of 2015 to revisit some of our favorite guests. We'll hear from musicians like John Legend, athletes like NBA champion Samaki Walker, who played in Syria, the only former NBA player to ever do so, and journalist Jean-Marie Laskus, who actually wrote the book on which the film Concussion is based. I'll also give my review of the film Concussion and share some of our big plans for the new year. So let's go back to our interview with Chuck D, who's kind enough to join us as the very first guest on the new Edge of Sports podcast. Well, I wanted to be a sportscaster, and I, well, I was obsessed with being that guy that was either going to be uh, a Marv Albert or, or, or Bryant Gumble before today or somebody, somebody, you know? It wasn't unnatural to me at all, so... To actually make a, a, a sports reference, keep it hip-hop, make it sound fly, and then make it political. I mean, that comes from, you know, John Carlos, Tommy Smith, uh, the 68 boycott uh, of the Olympics, Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell saying, no, I'm, you know, I'm going to still live here in Boston, I ain't going to like it. You know, um, Jackie Robinson, who further, as we get far away from 1940. Now, the reason I say 1946 because Jackie Robinson breaking through in another country in Montreal and experiencing the hatred from Southern players in the minor leagues was was as groundbreaking as 47. You know, so I, I became obsessed with so much sports, and then later on, post 19 and 18 years old, I became as obsessed towards music and musicology and black music. And then I put put it together like a Reese's peanut butter cup. My workout routine? Well, my, my Pilates teacher, where I live out in um, Central Cal, is a lady by the name of Kathy Lopez. And, um, she teaches a different technique. And I, I believe that Pilates is... Uh, Pilates is the the rapper's ultimate workout because it works on power within strength. It's not yoga, although we do yoga exercises and stuff like that, but it really kind of works on, uh, it's an inner cardio stretch, and as an MC, you got to have a core. Now, I'm not speaking of some, some MCs that go around that, you know, <laughs> they sit on a seat and shit like that. And, I mean, this is like, this is, I do really rough physical and I'm 55. I'm double nickel now. So, mm-hmm. I mean, because you got to sometimes take a verse and you you can't breathe. So right. you got to keep like you got to kind of have outlet, outlet, outlet. So when's your when's your inhale? So and then if you got move and stuff like that, it's really quite you know it's an athletic thing. So it's not just moving. You got to you got to kind of run your mouth. So yeah, it's can, Pilates, man. Can I Pilates this? is the perfect thing. You know, it's the P and then. the and the the E at the end is the P-E. <laughs> so Kathy was thinking about, you know, even, I said, you know what, Kathy, you could probably actually put out a, we could probably put out a book or something together because this is, this is key. And 
And really, as a lot of guys get into their 40s and 50s, you know, you're seeing casualties. You know, we just lost uh, Sean Price and, mm-hmm. you know, Heavy D's no longer here. And yeah, it's crazy. So now, you know, you got guys in their 40s and 50s that are going to, they're suffering different ailments. It's, 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 you know, I do one hour twice a week. Hmm. It's crazy, right? And it does it for you. Yo, man, you know, after six or seven months, you know, you start saying, wow, okay, this is, this is good. Yeah. And, you know, and, and you're never, ever the expert either. Don't tell your instructor, yeah, I got this now. <laughs> no, don't, don't make that mistake. I definitely ain't making a mistake. I don't say nothing during my workouts. Nothing. Because the minute you say something, oh, yeah, you, is you good now? Oh, you think, okay, here we go. I'm like, no, nah, I don't want it. And it's all simple. It's crazy shit. Like, I don't like doing squats, man, but, hey, I got to do the f***ing squats. All right, yeah, and then you're all better for it. Thanks so much to Chuck D. Visit publicenemy.com or find him on Twitter at Mr. Chuck D. I can't believe we've only been doing eight shows in the amount of content that we've been able to accrue. Uh, we're also really thrilled to bring on another legendary musician who is on show number two, and that would be none other than John Legend. <laughs> jumped right in to support the student-led protests at Missouri and the football team's crucial threat of a work stoppage to achieve their goals. Hope all the world is in our generation. It's all left up to us to change this present situation. John, Missouri. The football players said they were not down for taking the field unless the school president... Got, got gone. And I just wanted to ask you, as somebody who I know pays attention to these social justice-type issues, what was your reaction when you heard about this story? I was really stunned by the power that the football players were willing to wield. And I guess I always knew that if the players uh, in college football, particularly because of the amount of money that college football brings in, and the importance of college football to campus life for these big-time programs. I always knew that they had a lot of power, but I never thought they would harness it for something like this. And uh, I was pretty thrilled by the possibilities. The idea that students could come together, that particularly because of the power of college football, that players could come together and wield their power in this way, it, it had my mind thinking of all the ways <laughs> right. that, that um, college football players, they really have so much influence, uh, really uh, disproportionate influence in this particular sphere. You know, who knows what they could come together to do in the future. And, uh, man, this shows you the power of just saying, we're not going to show up today. We're not going to show up to practice. We're not going to show up to this game. We know how valuable we are to this institution, and we need to be treated as such. Our generation, it's all left up to us. Our generation, let's do just what we must. Straighten it out, gotta straighten it out. Now, you're a football fan, I'm a football fan. I have a seven year old son. He is not allowed to grow up and play football, according to every single person in my family, no matter my yeah. dreams of living his athletic glory. Uh, 
<laughs> or living my own yeah. through him. I know that, you know, it's obviously big news that you're about to become a dad. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank w- you. What are your what are your thoughts about your own kids in football? Well, you know, I do have thoughts about it. I have nephews that are playing right now, and it's hard not to be excited for them because they're really good. They're both, uh, you know, quick, skilled players. So they would be the type that would play probably a wide receiver, potentially running back, but they would be, you know, guys that would possibly get hit. You see people like Wes Welker and, mm. and various players out there that fit their kind of body types and are playing the kind of positions that they would possibly play. Um, and they're really good. They're like among the best players in their particular grade level uh, in their community. And, and it's hard not to be excited for them to do well because you grew up watching people like them play and, and wanting them to do well. But then you also, in the back of your mind, are aware of the, the risk. And obviously there are risks in, in a lot of things. There's risks in me driving my car. There's risks in anything. But uh, if you can control it and if you have choices, then, you know, you have to think twice about whether or not you want your kids or, or your family members to subject themselves to the potential, particularly brain trauma that we've seen happen with some players. Uh, do you have any sports slash politics heroes, people who've combined those worlds of sports and politics? I have a lot of respect for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, actually. And um, I've been reading more and more about him lately and how he's used his position over the years to really speak out and say some really interesting things. I think he's a great writer. And, you know, I grew up a Lakers fan and loving the sky hook from Kareem when they were still winning championships with him. But I had no idea how brilliant he was as a writer and as a thinker. Yeah. And uh, my Kareem factoid that I always tell folks is 1968 Olympics where Carlos and Smith raised their fist. Kareem just stayed home in solidarity with them. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, and he's he's been such a powerful person throughout his career, and sometimes quietly, but uh, he's such an interesting, brilliant person. I was curious if you have a favorite protest song or political song, something that inspires you to make relevant well, music. Well, we've, we've done so many. I, I did that album with The Roots, uh, Wake Up. We were trying to not only do songs that people knew, but, but do quite a few that people didn't know and to really kind of, dig in the crates a bit and expose people to some, to some different stuff. One of the most powerful ones from that time period was uh, we recorded uh, I Can't Write Left-Handed by Bill Withers, um, which is a, a song about the Vietnam War, about a soldier coming home. Tell the tale, tell the tale, tell the tale, the family lawyer. Yeah, I'm trying to get a deferment for my younger brother. Bill is a veteran himself, and he's a friend of mine now, but he became a friend because he heard our version of the song and reached out to me. And uh, that's one of the more powerful recordings I've ever been a part of. If you guys check out that um, recording we did uh, with The Roots, me and, and, and The Roots, with uh, Captain Kirk on the guitar doing an amazing solo. And it was just one of the most powerful recordings I've ever been a part of. And uh, the only time I've ever 
literally cried in the studio while I was cutting vocals. Strange little man over here in Vietnam. I ain't, I ain't never seen. Bless his heart, I ain't never done, done to. He done shot me in my Um, if you had just one message for the students in Missouri, uh, as well as the football players, what would that message be? Well, I think I'm really impressed by them being willing to take a risk and use their power for something that wouldn't, wasn't easy and that wasn't, wasn't necessarily going to be popular with everybody, but using that power to try to make real change. And I think it's an example for all of us especially those of us who do something that's valuable in society, like for me as an artist. But, but just think about all those athletes and, and the value that they create for the universities around the country and for the pro athletes even, uh, the value they create for those franchises, for the networks, for the NFL. It's inspiring to all of us to think about how we wield that power. Oh, Lord, Lord, I can't write a letter. It's not every day we come across a professional team owner who feels the big picture in their bones. John Angelos is part of the ownership family of the Baltimore Orioles. Now, John Angelos made headlines in April for his public comments after protesters marched on an Orioles-Red Sox game after the killing of Freddie Gray by Baltimore police. There was pressure on Angelos to come down with a heavy hand on protesters, and instead he came back with empathy, understanding, and a razor-sharp political analysis any regrets in making that kind of a statement? No, I, I, I don't have any regrets about that statement, Dave, and I think it really wasn't about me. It was about the conditions of our community and how, at least in my view, a system can either look out for all of us or leave some of us behind. And to the extent that the system is leaving some of us behind. I think it's fair to question or to outright state that the system has failed not just those left behind, but has failed the totality of those within the group. So it would be hard for me to regret it because I think to do so would be to, again, let let down those who are suffering and are challenged and have not been taken very very good care of by the system as a whole. So when, when you made the statement, I can tell you that it connected with a lot of people because they said, yes, that's the truth. Declining standard of livings is merged with excessive surveillance and and things of that nature and excessive violence, as you put it, and abuses of the Bill of Rights, that these things walk side by side. And yet forget about pro sports owners for a second. You don't even hear politicians make those kind of connections, yet it looks demonstrably and objectively true. Why do you think more people aren't speaking out about this? Um, I think that's a result of a confluence of factors. I, I think you get, you, you, you witnessed here uh, probably from the late 60s, early 70s, a sort of march forward. And, you know, without politicizing it and talking about Republicans and Democrats, because you make a good point that when you look at the political process, it very, very much seems that no matter what side of the aisle you are, uh, th- those individuals are on, they seem to be reading very much from the same sheet music. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's because in a two-party system, 
you end up with two mass parties. And when you compound that by having the type of campaign contribution or campaign finance laws that we have in this country, which gives very wealthy groups and uh, corporate interests special access to politicians, whereas everyday people don't have that access. They have, you have one man, one vote here, but the disenfranchisement of the voting process by this particularly outrageous form of campaign finance in this country has really diluted the value of the vote. So politicians come through the front door and ask for every man's vote. But I, I think there's a pretty realistic concern here that they're going into the back room in the next moment and uh, gathering up all the campaign contributions. And once that happens, have you not disarmed the entire representational democracy to the point where the politicians no longer represent the people? And does that then lead to this, this relative indifference by the political process to the plight of the very people that the politicians are supposed to represent? Mm. I, I got to ask you, I mean, you speak about this four-decade period of industrialization, of shipping jobs both overseas and, of course, I, I'd also say to the anti-union regions of the south of the United States. And this period has also coincided, you, I'm sure you've heard this, like with politicians arguing that public funding of things like sports arenas can actually fill that gap of deindustrialization in the cities. Do you think that that's an argument that politicians should be making? Can that kind of sports infrastructure spending fill the gap that's been lost through deindustrialization? No, I do not think that's an argument that politicians should be making. I think it's it's largely an irresponsible way of thinking. Uh, I I would add, by the way, that not only do uh, sports facilities not fill that gap, but casinos gaming uh, entities, racinos, and all these types of things, mm-hmm. not, to, not to equate the two, because sports and gambling uh, as industries are, are very vastly different and should be kept that way, but they are both in the entertainment field, as are other fields, music, live entertainment. Those are all industries that seek disposable income. They really only create jobs that are service jobs, and there's absolutely no way, notwithstanding the... Uh, the apparent desire by both parties to suggest so for many decades. There's no way that low-paying service jobs can create the kind of or sustain the kind of standard of living. You mentioned a moment ago the decline in the standard of living in this country. There's no way that those jobs can replace the loss of millions of manufacturing jobs. Thank you, John Angelos. You can find him on Twitter, at John P. Angelos. And to all owners out there, you are welcome to come on the Edge of Sports podcast. But if you don't come correct like Angelos, you're going to get called out. Fair warning. Now, we've gone on long enough without addressing the elephant in the room of professional sports and perhaps the most important film to come out this Christmas season, and that would be Concussion. The Will Smith film just had its opening weekend, and the discussions of head injuries and brain disease in football is reaching a fever pitch. We're going to bring you three perspectives on this hugely important story. Let's start by hearing from NFL Players Association Chief Demoris Smith, where we talked about the movie Concussion in his office. I spoke to... um Dr. Amalu a couple of times since the movie has come out. He's Will in town. Will Smith plays Dr. Amalu in the film. Uh, Bennett 
was the first neurophysician that I invited to be on our concussion committee. And I was thrilled to learn that one of the scenes in the movie, I guess, is Dr. Amalu walking into the the breakers uh, into a, sort of a recreation of him coming to our players meeting back in 2010. Um, so I think that's awesome where movies like that, you know, whether whether it's Selma or, or any other movies who that that take the opportunity to take a historical event and, and make it into a, a a medium that's that's enjoyable. Look, the reality is for a whole generation of people, this is going to introduce the story about what happened. Right, and I think that anything that serves that purpose is is to be commended. You probably know the league is mounting a PR counteroffensive to the film. Yeah, and so. I think that's a mistake. I, to be dead honest with you, I, look I, for a, a guy that came into this job in two thousand and nine. I was on the hill within months yeah. of 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 being elected to the job, which. Um, all pleasant memories. Um, but I, I think the league would be better off embracing the truth about what happened, setting a, a pinpoint in history about what actually occurred, but then focusing on everything we've been able to do through collective bargaining to make the game safer. Right. Um, it, it seems to me that any effort to, to mount a PR counteroffensive is A, going to look like a counteroffensive, and, and worse yet, make it look like um, you don't believe it's true. Mm. And, and my problem with that is, I mean, unfortunately, I was there. I was there when the head of their concussion committee was a rheumatologist. Right. I, I remember sitting in this office going through stacks of documents, the letters that the league wrote to try to prevent Dr. Omalu's studies from being published. I talked to our legal team about fighting for Ben Utek so he could get the benefit of a, a new neurocognitive benefit um, that the league opposed. Mm-hmm. So, look, all of these things are real. Um, and it just seems to me that if the league truly wants to move forward, you have to be willing to allow the facts to rest comfortably in the past. Mm-hmm. And if you're unwilling to do that, y- y- you, the only thing you're doing is reinforcing with a number of fans and a number of parents um, concerns about your integrity. And continuing on this topic, let's hear from Jean-Marie Laskus, who wrote the GQ article Game Brain, and then the book Concussion about Dr. Bennett Amalu and his role in discovering and identifying CTE in football players. In the big picture, like, how do you feel like the NFL um, has responded uh, to Dr. Amalu, like dating back to 2009 to today? I mean, would you say cheers, jeers or somewhere in the middle? Oh, my gosh. Jeers and nowhere close to the middle. They marginalized him systematically. They did it deliberately of all of the unpaid scientists who were saying that there was this this severe issue going on with concussions in, in their players. But with Bennett in particular, just by demanding retraction to his work, not inviting him to any of their so-called, you know, concussion summits, they really just they just pretended he didn't exist. Do you think it was easier for them to pretend that he didn't exist because he was a Nigerian immigrant, because he did come from this forensic lab in Pittsburgh? Yes. Uh, do you think that, that that's one of the things that compelled them to be like, we can push this guy to the margins and no one will really notice? 
I think it was easy for them. He was not, you know, listen, he was, even when he did his research, he wasn't backed by a university. He wasn't backed by government grants. He did this all personally. You know, this was all funded by himself. It was his own kind of, you know, uh, just scientific puzzle he was going to figure out. So they didn't have that kind of, you know, oh, this is, you know, big cheese scientists that we're going to pay attention to out of respect. It was, it was more like, well, look, if we forget about him, maybe everyone else will. Now, the NFL's response to, to this coming film is very bizarre to me because it's like on the one hand, you hear them say things like, well, we welcome all discussions about this and we welcome the opportunity to show the American people all the remarkable steps we've made since 2009 to make the game safer, blah, blah, blah. Yet it's also been widely reported that they're setting up a whole kind of PR counter ops operation to go after the film and accuracies in the film and accuracies in your book. I mean, it's and I spoke to the head of the NFL Players Association who is himself dumbfounded that the NFL is taking this approach to the film and to the book. What advice would you give Roger Goodell with the coming, what I think is going to be storm that this film is going to cause? My advice to, I don't know if it would be Goodell so much as the team owners, if you want good PR, stop confronting this head on and saying that it doesn't exist and denying it and trying to poke holes in science that's been around now, not just since 2009, but actually more like 1994 when some of the early research was done. They've, Mm -hmm. they've had the same argument. Oh, we don't have enough. We don't have enough information yet. And we're making the game safer. And meantime, more guys are killing themselves. I would say to them, okay, what if you took a different approach here? And what if you instead decided to like take care of these guys before they kill themselves? Like open a care center at a hospital for these guys so that you can live out with their retirement and dignity rather than in cars dazing themselves or rather than like Dave Durison who yeah. puts himself in the, in the stomach and leaves a note, please look at my brain. I think they should say, here's some care centers. I think that would be a fantastic PR move. You know, One of their talking points, and I'm sure you're very aware of this, is that your book, this film, uh, Hollywood, is part of a kind of ideological-driven war on football. And I want to know how you respond to that narrative, that this is not about science, but this is about people who morally object to football and are using science as kind of a Trojan horse to get people to stop playing and watching. Okay, I, that's so easy to respond to since I wrote the book and the original article. And I, I can tell you flat out, I love football. I love the game. I love the Steelers. I would like nothing more for that than for that game to be able to continue. But I feel that I, as a fan, and the players on that field, I feel that we have all been duped by the NFL, who has not told us the truth, who has hidden from us the truth that they had at least since 2005 when they rejected Bennett's findings. Mm -hmm. They have known what's going on, and they have tried to divert our eyes, and I've been complicit in this as a fan. I'm watching this stuff, not knowing. It reminds me so much of the tobacco industry in the 70s and the 80s and later. And I would think back when I quit smoking, it wasn't because it was bad for me. It was because the tobacco industry duped me, and I feel so much of the same of that.
Thanks to D. Smith and Jean Marie Laskus. D is on Twitter at D. Smith NFLPA, and Ms. Laskus is at J.M. Laskus. Her book, Concussion, is available now. Visit your local independent bookseller, support those local bookshops. She is a tremendous writer. Now on to some of my own writing. A review, also available on thenation.com and in our show notes, why the movie Concussion spells trouble for the NFL and moral angst for the rest of us. So why do I believe the film Concussion will deliver a teeth-rattling blow to the National Football League? Why am I sure it will raise far-reaching questions about the price we collectively pay for loving football? Why can I guarantee that this movie will even further erode the already subterranean reputation of League Commissioner Roger Goodell? Because Concussion has something most message films do not possess. It's expertly paced and is one hell of a film. Even if you didn't really give a damn about the tobacco industry but found yourself riveted by Michael Mann's The Insider, then this is your type of flick. In other words, whether you watch football or not. The pacing, the acting, the kinetic athletic sequences, the use of familiar names, stories, and uniforms, it all gives concussion and access to the audience that does not only educate, it shocks. The dramatic structure of the film is as tried and true as Hollywood itself. It's the David versus Goliath story. An honest person versus the powerful. One human versus the machine. It's John Henry. It's Norma Ray. It's Karen Silkwood. It's Rocky Balboa. But what sets this story apart is not the structure or even the content. It's the moment. The real-life moment. Concussion is the true tale of Dr. Bennett Amalu, brilliantly played by Will Smith, and his effort to get the NFL to acknowledge the existence of the brain disease he discovered, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Dr. Amalu first identified this football-related brain disease in examining the brain of Hall of Fame Pittsburgh Steeler Mike Webster, who died at age 50 in 2002. Webster's mind was so deeply damaged that he was living in a van using superglue to keep his rotting teeth in place and tasing himself as a method of handling the pain. The NFL has still not come to terms publicly with what happened to people we cheered, like the late Webster, Dave Dorson, or Junior Seau. So unlike most other message films, Concussion is stepping into a live debate that has consumed the nation's most popular sport for the last seven years. This is not a dramatization aided by hindsight of a historical issue long put to bed. It's not about the well-known perils of smoking. It's stepping right into something that resembles a pit of vipers, but more accurately is a 3,000-mile-wide media hydra, drawing its lifeblood from the NFL's economic reach. We live in a time when the National Football League is the most popular cultural product this nation produces. In a time of more channels, more choices, more websites, more podcasts, and more options, the NFL's ratings and reach have only increased and entrenched. The league is pure, uncut power, but it's also a financial power built on a foundation of broken lives. And so many politicians right now and corporate heads are lauding Roger Goodell for all he's done to make the game safer, yet Concussion points a finger at Goodell and calls out the emperor for being buck-ass naked in public. The film is already provoking discussion beyond the sports jockosphere. Now as a tie-in with the film, we have NFL veterans, boyhood heroes of mine, like former New York Giant Leonard Marshall talking to Yahoo Sports about his post-playing concussed life and saying, quote, I just noticed that my behavior was starting to change. My patience, or lack of patience, was starting to diminish. I would forget things, forget financial responsibilities, take things for granted, have a short fuse with my daughter, a short fuse with my ex. As such, the film goes beyond the artistic success of its actors, script, and pacing to pose a moral question to critics and sports networks. It's about the pull of corporate pressure versus the public's right to know. 
Despite the efforts of the NFL to turn football into a red state, blue state issue, even rock-ribbed right-wing Republicans like Mike Ditka is saying that he wishes kids would, quote, take up golf, end quote, instead. Science is real, and the media now has to weigh not only the quality of the film, but their responsibility to not bury a film that could save lives. If it didn't sound like a gross 1980s straight-to-Cinemax release, Concussion could be retitled Informed Consent. But I agree, that probably sounds a little too Richard Gere and Sharon Stone for a serious film. So see this film and learn who has stymied our access to this truth. You'll learn something from seeing this film, but Concussion is a triumph precisely because it doesn't beat you over the head. Instead, it goes right to your other nerve centers as you reel from thrills to disgust to tears to anger. For many of us, some of that anger will be directed at ourselves for loving this game so much. Now for some news. Early in the new year, we're going to be traveling to Los Angeles to interview arguably the single most important voice today at that intersection of sports and politics, and he just happens to be pushing 70. We're going to go talk to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The legend, all-time leading scorer, six-time NBA MVP, who in recent years has become an outspoken cultural critic and public intellectual. In fact, this has happened after decades of silence by Kareem on political issues. Yet now his statements and his articles, his columns in Time magazine, I mean, it's turning everything he says into the sort of thing that gets discussed and rediscussed over and over again. He gets inside our brains and he gets under Donald Trump's skin. I'm going to be very straight with folks right here, right now. Um, Kareem is honestly the last person on my list of people I've dreamed of sitting down with and interviewing. And the thought that I'm going to do that, the thought that I'm going to L.A. and sit in a room with him for a couple hours is just an unbelievable feeling. And trust me, it's not going to be your typical jock interview, not by a long shot. If nothing else, I have one goal and one goal only for this trip, and that is to find out why. Why, after so many decades, is Kareem now reemerging as a public voice? Why is this person who showed so much political courage at the age of 20 now showing a similar courage as he pushes 70? So if you couldn't tell, we're just a little bit excited to be interviewing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and we want to throw this call out for questions and topics to you, our audience. Shoot me an email at edgeofsports at slate.com or tweet me at edgeofsports, my producer Dan, at Dan Bloom Sports. And if you have any ideas, questions, topics you want us to throw at Kareem, hey, let us know. We're also really grateful to Kareem and his team of folks for hooking all this up, and we cannot wait to do this. now for the first time ever on the Edge of Sports podcast, we have the State of the Sports Union. So 2015 saw no shortage of people who tried to use their hyper-exalted, brought-to-you-by-Nike platform to speak out about issues beyond the athletic field. The football players at Missouri going on strike against racism. The remarkable activists in Boston who kept the rapacious Olympics out of their town. The continuing fighters in Rio against the IOC and their own government. Steve Spurrier speaking out against the Confederate flag before and after the Dylan Roof murders. The brave statements of Adam Jones, Buck Showalter, and John 
John Angelos after the killing of Freddie Gray by Baltimore police and the property destruction outside of Camden Yards. Serena Williams returned to Indian Wells, where she was showered with racist invective years earlier, which she combined with raising money for the Equal Justice Initiative, a tremendous organization. NBA ref Bill Kennedy coming out of the closet as a response to Rajon Rondo's homophobia. Tabo Cephalosha's pursuit of justice after getting his leg broken by the NYPD. Or Steph Curry putting the name of slain Muslim student Dea Barakat on his shoes before the All-Star game. And I didn't even go into the Caitlyn Jenner land here. I mean, this has been a historic year in the world of sports. I could name so many more moments. We are clearly at a crucible where the pressures of our broken system, the poverty and racism that scars the soil from which so many athletes grow, conjoined with a social media that allows athletes to go around reporters they may not trust and take their thoughts straight to fans, is all producing something very unique and very special. It's courageous and it matters, puncturing the privilege that surrounds the lives of so many fans. Even LeBron catching a Bay Area aristocrat in mid-heckle over this past weekend speaks to the power of sports. Please look that up if you haven't seen the footage of that. So that being said, though, I will not remember 2015 for any of the heroes and sheroes mentioned above. It'll always ring true to me as a moment instead where women muscled for center stage and masses of people, men and women, put aside their prejudices and watched, tweeted, and joined the party. That's how I'm going to remember 2015. For me, this moment crystallized in a major way over the summer when my seven-year-old sports-obsessed son asked me to name the five athletes that if they're on TV, I had to see them no matter what. The five I named off the top of my head were Serena Williams, Lionel Messi, Steph Curry, Ronda Rousey, and pro wrestler Sasha Banks. It was only after I spoke the words that I did a holy double take. Without trying to make a conscious effort at any kind of gender balance, it was just there. Three of my five favorite must-see athletes were women. The following month, my entire family was in front of the TV cheering on the U.S. Women's World Cup team, except for my daughter, who is pushing for Japan, because that's just how she rolls. But, of course, we were not alone. The Women's World Cup finals had ratings that would have made any league save the NFL cry with envy, and a goal from Carly Lloyd that will be replayed to eternity. We also this year had Maya Moore announcing her intentions for GOAT status as a women's basketball player, and Elena Deladon showing that she may not be too far behind. We saw Sasha Banks and Bailey giving us the wrestling match of the year twice. We continued to witness UConn's reign atop all of sports as the dynasty above all dynasties. And we saw Ms. Rousey and Serena ending their own reigns with one literal Holly Holm kick to the side of the face and one figurative punch to Serena courtesy of Roberta Vinci. If you weren't talking about these moments, which happened to involve women, then you were not engaged with the heart of the sports world in 2015. In many ways, this year could not have ended with a moment that was more on the nose. Serena Williams was named Sports Illustrated Sports Person of the Year, a blazingly obvious choice after three Grand Slams at the age of 34. Yet a small sector of people erupted with anger that the award, again for Sports Person of the Year, remember, did not go to a horse. Triple Crown winner American Pharaoh. This was followed up by the Los Angeles Times asking readers if Serena Williams or a horse was more deserving. This self-righteous pro-horse movement was comprised of people I'm going to describe as dead-enders, showing their own irrelevance, missing the fact that the present was changing before their very eyes and Serena belonged on that throne. 
Granted, only the future can answer this question, but I believe that we will remember 2015 as a pivot year when women in sports took it to that next level and through their play offered the sharpest possible rebuke to the secondhand citizenship of cheerleaders and sexist beer commercials that sections of the athletic industrial complex want them to inhabit forever. We will see what 2016 and beyond will bring, but as the father of a daughter who thinks that sports is just not for her despite my best efforts and a son who I'm trying to raise to not be a damn pig, 2015 was transcendent. This was the year of women in sports. And over the next decade, I think we'll see the reverberations of 2015 in both the sports world and beyond. Bringing us home, we have Samaki Walker, who went from winning a title in L.A. alongside Kobe Bryant to being the first NBA player in Syria. It's 2007, 2008. You're playing for Aleppo in Syria. You step off the plane. You're part of this team. What was that like just to be in Syria at that time? You know, it was an incredible experience because I didn't know what to expect, you know, initially. And I'll be honest, I was ignorant like, some Americans, I won't say all, because there are a lot of aware people who follow up and keep what's going on globally. Uh, I am one who keep up on my current affairs globally, uh, but Syria was not a place that I was necessarily uh, up on until, you know, uh, right before. You know, uh, my agent, actually, who had a connection in the Middle East and brought it up to me what I'd be interested in possibly playing in the Middle East, which you know, sparked my curiosity of the region more so than what I've seen on TV. And I had no idea that basketball was even being played in Syria, you know, Iraq, you know, Lebanon and that region. And so it really intrigued me. And it was a great opportunity for me to continue to use basketball as a platform in which, you know, I was taught as a young kid. And I thought it was probably the best chance I would ever have of being able to do that and travel globally and see things from my own eyes. And so I jumped in the opportunity. Let me ask you this. You're a a six-foot, nine-inch, I believe I have that right, um, African-American man walking the streets of Syria. Very difficult to not stand out, I imagine, in that situation. How did people treat you on the day-to-day, like shop owners, neighbors, uh, the people in your neighborhood, like the, the police. I mean, how, how are you treated on the day-to-day? It was amazing. Um, they welcomed the American while I was in Syria. I actually felt like everyone else. I could walk the streets. As long as I was unselfish, I picked up a few words to communicate as a local. I mean, they respect that, as you would. In any country, you appreciate someone who's trying to go above and beyond the call of duty to make a connection. And I was able to do that. What do you say to people? You lived in Syria. What do you say to the people who say that we have to keep the Syrian um, immigrants out of this country, out of Western Europe, uh, the, the people who've been displaced from their homes, the refugees? What do you say to the people who say keep the refugees out? I would say a few things. There is no one face of America. I am a firm believer in being able to work together to make this a better place. Also, these Syrian refugees, refugees 
are not here because they wanted to be here. They were forced to leave their country. And I can guarantee you, if they had a choice to be here in the United States, even as advanced as the United States is, or in their home country of Syria, believe you me, they would choose Syria. Even in conversation, I would talk, they love their country so much that they would, they would take the fact that the power cuts off you know, during the middle of the day and things of that nature because this is a prideful group of people, a group of people who don't get into the work life to the point to where they lose family. I've seen the grandfather, grandmother, and grandkids come into the coffee shops during the middle of the day, you know, and granddad and doctor and his philosophies and things. I'm sitting back from afar. Remember the time in our country when we had that kind of time, you know, not just the people who had money in this country now who are able to buy themselves the kind of time to sort of have a real family, but it's to the point in this country where you're working so much now and mm-hmm. you have to buy time to have a real family. And so what I say to the people is be patient. These people here are good people. They're people, kind, loving people. And a story that I, I, I think I've shared with you on a prior, another show was there was a time in which I was headed to basketball practice and I was greeted by a gentleman who couldn't speak a lick of, lick of English. <laughs> now, he had two teacups. One for me, one for him, in passing. He welcomed me over. I grabbed the teacup. I sipped it. I put it back on. We bowed heads. And, you know, he seen me off. And I thought it was one of the most amazing things that ever happened for two people who obviously couldn't understand each other from a verbiage standpoint. You know, he sent a clear message that, hey, I don't really know you, my friend. Welcome to my country. You know, my country is yours. And for me, I think uh, it really humbled me. And I promised, you know, in Syria that I would share my message and my experience to anyone who would listen. I want to give a shout out to all my Syrian friends, especially my teammates who have been forced to leave their homes, who are here in the States, in Europe, and around the world. Just know that you have a voice and that I'm doing everything that I can to make sure that the rest of the world, you know, hears your pain. Thanks to Samaki Walker. Visit SamakiWalker.com and tweet him at Samaki underscore Walker. To all the guests we didn't include in this podcast, we want to thank you so much for joining us and encourage the listeners to go back and listen to the whole catalog. George Atala of the NFL Players Association, NBA champion Craig Hodges, Baltimore activist and rapper Son of None, Laron Prophet, Shamiqua Holdsclaw, and coming soon, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Thanks to all the incredible guests for their time, and most importantly, thank you, the listener. Without you, we're just talking to ourselves. So subscribe to the show on iTunes, on Stitcher, and hear all the shows on edgeofsportspodcast.com. Have a happy and safe New Year's, everybody. We'll see you in 2016. Peace!